Hello and you're very welcome to another episode of the Life Well Live podcast with me, your host Shane Breslin. My guest on this week's episode is Dr. Olivia Hurley, who has in recent years quickly forged a reputation as one of Ireland's brightest young academics. Dr. Olivia Hurley is Assistant Professor and Lecturer in Psychology and Sport and Health Psychology at the IADT, the Institute of Art, Design and Technology in Dunleary in Dublin, Ireland, where she runs a Certificate in Sports Psychology Level 8 part-time programme, a course which has attracted some of Ireland's top elite sports stars, coaches and business people, including Leinster and Ireland Rugby International Jordan Larmer, world amateur boxing champion Kelly Harrington and Niall Breslin, the musician, mental health campaigner and co-founder of the mental health organisation A Lust for Life. In this wide-ranging conversation with Olivia, we chatted about why she has mixed feelings about the term motivation, the difference between confidence and self-belief, how elite athletes get the best out of themselves and what all of us can learn from that, why she has a disdain for the quest for happiness the key factors that distinguish between the highest achievers and those who don't quite get there, the concepts of green and blue exercise, the intersection between performance, psychology and technology in the 21st century, and why she's not afraid of the growth of artificial intelligence. If anything in here resonates with you, as always, I'd be so delighted if you were able to share it out on social media or email or wherever you share things. Word of mouth is great with your friends, family or colleagues. The Life Well Live podcast is all about navigating the challenges of life, being our best selves in the world and ultimately living whatever it is that amounts to our very own life well lived, one of fulfillment, contribution and yes, of happiness, a different type of happiness to that which Olivia confronts in this podcast. All previous episodes of this show are available in your podcast app or by visiting my website at shanebreslin.com. Okay, that's enough from me for now. On to this week's episode and my conversation with sports and performance psychologist, Dr. Olivia Hurley. So Olivia, you're very welcome to the the podcast. I'm delighted to have you here and very grateful for your time. there's loads of stuff. We've been talking for 20 minutes already um, <laughs> before we even started recording. Yep. There's loads of stuff we, we can go with here. I'd like to ask you, first of all, before we get into your work and the um, high level sports uh, work that you do, but also at the individual performance level and other, lots of other disciplines, what, what, are you, what are you most excited about right now in the, as we approach summer 2019? Okay, um, right. So what am I most excited about? Well, I always kind of go back to, I suppose, how do I define myself? So um, I like to tell people that, you know, you're a person first and foremost, um, and then you're, you know, you're not your job. Um, But I would probably uh, would have people around me who would say you kind of are in many ways because you live your job, you know, in that I'm, I suppose I have the gold standard, um, if you like, look, I would call it, because I love what I do. So everything that I do, I think feeds into my job, feeds into making me the person that I am. So what excites me at the moment does, I suppose, centre a little bit around my job, but around life and Irish society and global society as well. Um, I think people are very much, I'm very much a glass half full rather than a glass half empty person. Um, I think life experience has helped with that, but I think I've always been a little bit like that anyway. Um, And I suppose what I'm really excited about at the moment is in my own discipline, I've worked very hard to create a space where it's accepted, where people see what I do as being, I would define myself as, I say, a 
first and foremost a, a daughter, a sibling, a, a very strong family relationships. My parents are amazing. My sister, my two brothers, they are my team as I call them. I don't, you don't get to where you are in, in my career or in my life without having that team and social support network is one of my favourite phrases and great family, great friends. But they also love what I do and they're also very much have influenced what I do. So I've found that I'm really excited about the way that my discipline has started to be accepted. I would describe myself as a scientist first. People often say, oh, well, you're a sports psychologist. I'd say, first of all, I'm a scientist. Then I'm a psychologist. And then I'm a sports psychologist. Um, and sport and performance, as we, as we were talking about earlier. So I would say, as a science, I'm really excited about the way that the world is very much, um, how would you say, embracing kind of STEM and as a girl, as a female in that arena, I'm really excited by the opportunities that I see women having and here in IEDT we're very much, um, we have a very unique, I think, atmosphere and environment because we're very gender balanced. So whether you want to be a manager or an, a kind of high level senior lecturer or professor, there's nothing to stop you getting there. So, and I love to be in a position where I can say that there, the sky is the limit in many ways. We talk about glass ceilings and stuff. So I'm really excited by that. I think that that's great for the next generation coming through. I teach classes that are you know, very gender uh, mixed and very background mixed. Um, and it's great to be able to say in your discipline that it's being much more widely accepted. It's being seen as exciting. It's being seen as something that really can contribute and help people to live really good lives. Um, I saw your podcast, I actually did tune in your uh, Pursuit of Happiness and I saw the, the, that movie and stuff and it's actually funny because the happiness word, um, I actually don't really like it very much. Um, I love words like excitement, I love the word joy because and gratitude um, and I think they're words that were, I tend to use quite a lot and I try to use them with my students um, because it is about normalising as we say the performance, you're not going to perform at your best every day, you're not going to feel great every day. So when you say to people, like, what excites you, they'll often say, well, or what would you like at it today? And it's like, well, I'd just like to be happy today. And I sometimes say to them, well, there's the door. Because if that's what really inspires you on a day-to-day -day basis, happiness really often relies on other people and circumstances. Mm -hmm. It's I feel joy and kind of gratitude and, as I say, my, my, my whole discipline, where it's got to it's more of a joyful experience in terms of where you're at and where you think things are going because you have more control over that. You can mm. help to mould and shape how that's going to happen. Um, and I'm really excited by that. You know, I do think um, sports psychology is becoming much more um, accepted. I think that we've fought, me and my male colleagues, because I am in a discipline that's male-dominated in many ways. Sport in general is quite male-dominated. I think it's great that girls, the whole 2020 initiative, that I think it's amazing. Um, I'm fully behind it, supported 100%. I think the girls, the way that you can go to a rugby game now, and there's tens of thousands of people at it, where before you might have got a couple of hundred. I think that's really, if you like, kind of grabbed the attention and the, the, the kind of the imagination of, of Irish society, which I think is brilliant. Um, so yeah, I think they're, they're the kind of things that excite me uh, about my discipline, but also about life in general, because I love sport, I love performance, I love the whole just seeing people get up and do their best and know what their best is and helping them to achieve that. And I tend to be that type of a person. Sometimes people remind me you need to look after yourself too because you can be, you can be a helper and a giver all the time. 
um, and then sometimes that is at the detriment to looking after yourself and I think again life experience teaches you that um, I've had a few I don't tend to, to share it but I've had in, in the past kind of eight nine years ago I had a very serious health scare and I think that changes you um, but people, I remember a friend of mine after it said to me, and it was a, it was pretty much a life and death situation. I'm only now really learning a lot more about it because my family tended to, to drip feed me the information. It's need to know basis as you got better. Um, I never conceived at the time. It was a serious pneumonia, and then it developed into a, a kind of a sepsis and infection right. that was really quite life threatening. But um, I remember my sister has a medical background hugely many ways maybe oh, oh her and the doctors my life um, but I remember a friend of mine a couple of weeks after I got out of hospital and was, and was on the road to recovery saying to me do you think you were very lucky or very unlucky and I said oh and her, her name is Joan, Joan Cahill actually a friend of mine from DCU or from Trinity I've just done some research with her and I said oh Joan I'm incredibly lucky I said you never know who your real friends are and who really cares about you and the outpouring of people that care about you until you're in a situation like that. And it really amazes you how people step up and how people, where you ultimately become the focus of people's lives and where they back you and support you and where you can't do things for yourself or where they really have to be there for you. Um, but I think it changes you in a way that makes you very much you don't sweat the small stuff. It's mm. like the little things that I want to be happy. Well, what is happiness? It, it, it's, it, and it's, it's about what, it, what excites you. Life is, and I use that phrase a lot, life is too short to sweat the small things. Mm. You know, So if somebody is worried about an exam or worried about a match or worried about something that I'm in a position to be able to kind of help them to manage, it is first and foremost about managing the person and about helping the person to see that really regardless of how you go out and perform today, that doesn't change who you are as a person. I will still think you're, and I do, and people joke about it. I, I kind of nearly adopt all of the athletes and all of the, the clients and the people that I work with and the students. Um, and I, I don't have any children of my own, but my mum and dad would say, but you, you have such a wide <laughs> collection of them that you've kind of, you know, and they're all still in touch with me. And many of them, you know, come back and ask for support and help years later and, you know, check back in with you from time to time or continue to work with you. Um, and, and I think that's a good legacy to have, that people are, are willing and, and, and feel they're able to come back because I think if it's a bad experience that they have with you in your job or in your, in your environment or your classroom, they wouldn't do that. Mm. Um, so, uh, but I, I do think it's about you know, being able to help them. I think my job is about helping people to see ultimately what they're capable of doing. Um, reinforcing for them sometimes that you can see in them what they're capable of. Sometimes they need a bit of reminding of that. Um, I think sometimes we, we don't see in ourselves what other people see in us in terms of potential. And I would see it as my job to help people to see that you know, the sky is the limit if they really want to achieve something. It's about, I, no, I'm, not, I'm a realist too. I mean, don't get me wrong, like if somebody's capability, if, if an Olympic gold medal for somebody is making a final, that's brilliant. So it isn't about being the winner, you know, it is about setting what I call the, the, the little, the W's, the little wins as in the personal best. We deal with the word kind of winning and the word perfection over the years. I've always been, people would regard me as a bit of a perfectionist, but I would say that that word is one I've banned from my vocabulary in the last kind of... 10 odd years I would say um, because I say oh now it's about aiming for excellence so what is your excellent today you know it may not be what your excellent was last week because you've been suffering with some sort of cold or flu or whatever so getting back on the treadmill or getting back out for a run or a walk maybe getting from here to the end of the road is, a, is excellent for you today whereas maybe 
two weeks ago or two months ago, getting from here to the end of the country might have been, mm. you know, a, an excellent performance. So it's about managing expectations as well. I think we need to sometimes learn from what we have experienced and help it to reset us in many ways. Mm. Mm. So, um, there's so yeah. So that's there's, lots, there's lots to delve into there yeah. even before we even get into anything else. Sure. But, um, on, on the happiness piece, I, I, yes. I do take your point. Yes. And it is something that I have considered and pondered and written about and yes. I plan to do more Brilliant. because I think that we're fundamentally misunderstanding what happiness yes. is and I, and I think that the, the pursuit of happiness the, 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 the enshrined in the American Constitution forces people to go out there and reach for, reach for everything because they can never realise what's in the, inside yes. themselves and so I, like my, my personal view which may change in time because things like that change but personal view for the last two or three years in, in all this self-exploration that I've been going through is that I think that happiness is the point of, e of everything, but I think we're fundamentally misunderstanding. I think happiness needs to be redefined. Um, yeah. So I, like I, and I think that happiness is not, is not happy, sit back, feet up. Don't think that, I don't think that's it at all. I think happiness is fulfillment, um, contentment, contribution, impact, legacy, all of those things, and community. And they're great words. Yeah, and so they're the words that I would say, if that's what it means to you, that's absolutely great because yeah. that they are the words that I would use. I would use the word contentment, gratitude, you know, kind of, I say the happiness word. It's, it's a little bit like as well, there's a word in psychology um, and sports psychology particularly, the word motivation, you know, what motivates you, what drives you. And again, I've, I've kind of built up a bit of a love-hate relationship with that word, um, particularly because I think there's been people working in my field who've used that word and it's overused and sometimes they don't understand what they're, in many ways they haven't gone through the training or the experiences that we have as, as, as I suppose, as qualified and proper people working, not proper people, but qualified and, and well-experienced people working in our area yes. and where we're under the watchdogs. And I think it's a little bit like kind of, you know, anybody can say they're something, but it's like, well, have you gone through the training and have you gone through the whole... I suppose discipline in terms of understanding the words that you're using because sometimes that is what it is it's a lack of understanding of the words so the motivation word I would say I've kind of I've replaced that with words like self-regulation and self-awareness and you know kind of the, the word as well things like self-esteem you know we've replaced that with kind of things like well let's look at self-efficacy and self-belief because again there are things that you can control more you know, like self-esteem is, you know, the self-words about self-concept um, and in, in psychology and in sports psychology, there's a lot of words like that where we talk about people's self-confidence and their self-esteem. And I would, my students would tell you, I say a lot about, well, do you know, and they walk into your class going, oh, I use those words. And you'd say, well, well define it for me. And they might know that self-esteem is about like esteem, it's about worth and how you value yourself. But I would say, but ultimately, how do you get to the point at which you generate some sort of a value or a worth of yourself. And they don't know the underlying kind of things like self-efficacy and self-belief. Well, I, I, I have a worth, but the value of that I get from something in terms of what I can do and what I can achieve. And I'm like, well, let's work on the self-efficacy. Let's work on that self-belief. What do you believe you can achieve and what are you striving to achieve? And then how does that feed into your sense of self-confidence and self-esteem? I would often as well say, or well, self-confidence particularly, confidence as a word, a little bit like I'd say that maybe the redefining of the happiness versus the joy words. Self-confidence is like kind of the confidence word is where we would say to players, and they use that word a lot, oh, I've lost my confidence or my confidence is low. And I'd be saying, well, where do you think that comes from? 
and they will say, well, it's coming from if I can achieve something or whatever. And I'd be like, that's more your self-belief. The belief in your ability to be able to do something and to be able to control that performance. Self-confidence and confidence comes more from somebody saying, well done, you achieved it. It's more of an external thing that's more really? externally focused, yeah. So like that's the difference in those terms. It's like confidence is more of what do you get your confidence from? You get it often from what people write about you, what people say about you. If somebody, a coach says, well done, great job. What happens if the coach is having a bad day that day? What happens if the coach is distracted and you've made an amazing kick or pass or done something incredible, but they're so distracted in their own little world that day because their son or daughter is sick or something has happened and they don't walk up to you at the, game, at the end of the game and say, well done, great game. They might be thinking that, but they're distracted. So you're waiting for that feedback and that kind of where you can build your confidence from that and they don't give it. So then you go home and you're going, was I really as good as I feel I was and mm. the way I performed? On paper, it might look that you were, and you know that maybe your targets you hit, but you're waiting for somebody else to give you the evaluation for to be able to say, it's okay for me to be able to say, I did good today. Whereas self-belief is more, regardless of what other people say, how would you evaluate your performance? Where is the objective, you know, and I am a, a very much, you know, I think, you know, you were asking me maybe earlier about or before when we chatted about kind of, you know, the type of person I am, I am kind of goal-driven. I do have routines and habits that I've kind of formed over years that work for me, may not work for other people. Um, but I would say that that's based around that, well, what objectively can I say is or are the things that I can, at the end of the day, say, well, I've achieved that, that and that, and I set out to achieve them so I can feel good about that today. I'm not waiting for somebody else to say to me, good job, Olivia. So I think that, like, that that's a really um, uh, important point, I think, because I think, like, whether it's high level sport to somebody working in a job as a member of a team of 10 in a company of 5,000. Um, the, the, the challenge of forging that self-belief or the self-efficacy internally as opposed to externally. What, what, what are some, and, and bat this down the line and have a think about it and we come sure. back to it later on if you, if you want, but what, what are some um, maybe practical uh, tips or toolkit, is there a toolkit to, to uh, put Help that in people. action? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there is. I mean, I've mentioned the whole kind of goal setting. I mean, one of the things that we do, and, I, and again, I wouldn't like for anybody who's you know, listening in to think that what a sports psychologist does is all about helping people to set goals. And, and people say, oh, well, that's just a tick the box exercise. Actually, it's not. People are amazingly poor at goal setting and target setting and I like the word target setting because I like that idea of like a bullseye and you're aiming for it and you may you may miss it because that's that kind of perfection but it's okay to be within the ballpark so okay to be within a range and that's an excellent performance okay so we do use various techniques like as I say target setting where you can objectively measure well what I achieved today can you write down and say well and, and I would always say to players and athletes and performers you should never just go through the motions. You know, I think really good performance comes out of, and, and we talk about routines and habits, and I don't mean rituals because that's a very different thing. Because again, a ritual can be where, again, you're, you're waiting for other things to happen. And if something, the curveball is thrown at you and the game is delayed or the team bus doesn't get there in time, can you still go out and perform even though your routine, when I say routine, the ritual really that you followed has been disrupted in some way? 
but routines are really good. They're, they're, they're something that give people a sense of calm and a sense of let me manage my day. And we often feel overwhelmed when it is that we can't control or manage certain things in our lives. So I am very much an advocate of target setting and setting yourself goals. But being okay at the end of the day and saying, well, that was my list for today. I didn't get to that and that. So they just go on to the list for tomorrow. That's okay, because you're not going to achieve everything in the same day. So for sports people and for business people and whether it's, as you say, employers or in companies or whatever, we would use target setting and where you can objectively evaluate. And I'm sure you've heard of the SMART principle where you set the specific goals, measurable. I'm a, I'm a doer. I would say the A people think is often achievable or attainable. Actually, the word should be or is in many cases, if you look at the psychology literature, action-based. So specific, measurable, action-based realistic because people use the word attainable and then they use or for realistic and it's like but they're the kind of the same mm -hmm. thing so it's action based i'm always saying to people task focus now that doesn't mean that i don't think that people should pay attention to how they're thinking and feeling as well but it's like actions my mentor professor aiden moore my academic dad as i like to call him he always used to use this phrase often you're waiting for the feeling to dictate how you behave so in other words, you know, you let your feeling and your emotions. When I feel like studying, I'll go up and study. Guess what if, as we were talking about earlier, Game of Thrones or something else is on, or a good movie. That will always be more attractive than going up and studying for an hour or reading a book, a chapter for preparing for an exam or whatever, or going out and training in the lash of the rain when you'd love to stay in on the couch just, you know, with your feet up. So it's about not waiting for the feeling to inspire the action, but actually, and he uses this phrase, and it's actually William James, you know, kind of, it's not Aidan's phrase, really. It's act your way into the feeling rather mm. than feel your way into the action. Mm. So it's often get up and do the thing and do something, even if it's something small. And we advocate that for people who are struggling with their mental health and well-being. It's like get up and do something just where you feel you've accomplished something today doesn't have to be amazing and for some people it is literally getting out of the bed getting up brushing the teeth having the shower and just getting into doing something that day and um, other people it is where they're looking and again there's that sense of you shouldn't be looking outside always and seeing what everybody else is doing um, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing at the moment and again you're asking me about the goal setting but one of the things we're doing with athletes a lot and students because I think it's very relevant is what I call mental fortitude training and that is where we can say to them look stop engaging in that kind of it's it's good to look at other people and see what they're doing and bandora's you know modeling behavior and using that as a way of inspiring you but it, we become sometimes overly focused on what other people are doing and we stop what i say staying in our own lane in other words that phrase what other people think of you is none of your business you know stay on your own track that's what gets you from a to b so the task focus of like what do you want to achieve is a lot of the time don't be worrying about what everybody else is saying and what everybody else is doing because they can often seem like as if it's very off-putting like I have people who say to me jeepers do you ever stop you know you're always you're a doer and I am a doer but I also know that like and I could talk for Ireland as my dad says you know you ran for Ireland but she could talk for Ireland she's in the right job um, and, and my job is talking I that's what I do for a living but I also have to listen and I would say if I need to work on something in my job it's listening more I love uh, Judge Judy. She says, you have two ears and one mouth <laughs> and you should use them in that ratio. I have to remind myself sometimes when I'm working with clients and athletes is to be quiet and listen to what the person is saying. Don't listen just because you want to reply. Listen 
and then give something productive and helpful. So to go back to the mental fortitude training, what we do often, and it's based on research, Sarkar and Fletcher, I'm not sure if you've come across them, I have a little handout you're going to take away with you all okay. about that. Um, and Sarkar was after the 2012 Olympics in the UK, they had so many gold medalists. And what they did was they brought in loads of the gold medalists from Team GB. And they said, let's, we've got all these great athletes, let's see the ones who are the nearly made it versus the ones who didn't quite make it. What makes the difference? to the ones who really get there, who get to that pinnacle. Um, as you say, maybe that happiness, it, it, it's a point, but really, it's not really, it's a journey. The destination really only leads on to the next pathway, if you like, okay? So we're never really there, we're never really done. But if you're a gold medalist, or if your gold medal was making the final, what helped the people who achieved their goals and were happy and happy, but really got joy out of that and, and were, were, were really content with that performance versus those who weren't? And they, their whole resilience, if you like, theory and, and kind of research is based around that. And they identified nine key characteristics that the athletes who were the made it versus and content with how they did versus those who didn't make it. And one of the things was they said that these athletes had a great social support network around them. They knew that they were never going to get to where they wanted to go without knowing that they needed help and support from other people. But they also knew that there was an element of stay in your own lane. Focus on what you're doing too many voices distract you. Stay on that trajectory and that pathway. They also were people who knew that to get where they wanted to go, they couldn't achieve everything else that everybody else was doing. So it was about going prioritize for now, achieve what you want to achieve, then you reevaluate, reassess. And it's about that target setting. It's about, it's a constant, it's, a con it's not a tick the box exercise, it's a constant thing that you're doing. So every training session and every match I would say a lot of athletes, the mismatch between being brilliant in competition, no, in training, sorry, and then not quite getting it in competition, is that there's a mismatch in terms of how they see training versus how they see performance in competition. And I would say a lot of the problem that I see, not problem, but the, I can predict nearly what somebody who comes in to see somebody like me is going to say. My confidence is low. I'm performing great in training, but I'm not performing well in competition. I can't concentrate, I'm just getting distracted. I think that's the reason why I'm not performing well. And I will say, well, how often do you really train at the intensity that you're training for competition? And they will often say, well, I'm training at 70, 80%. That's not good enough. You know, you need to be going out and not just going through the motions in training. It's like, you know, and Brian O'Driscoll, I think a few years ago, gave an interview where he said, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is that they, they think that they can go out and train at an intensity of about 70 or 80% and that the match day will sort out the remaining 20. doesn't. Match day, adrenaline, the game environment probably makes up about the extra 5%. The 95 is what you need to be habitually doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So where every training session is an opportunity to set targets, to set goals, to use that resilience training about stay in your own lane, focus on your own performance, don't be getting distracted by what the other number 10 is doing or the other, you know, your person is competing for your place. You stay on your own, you know, kind of target and lane, if you like. Um, and another thing is as well, recognizing that to do that, there's going to be things that you're going to have to not be able to achieve and to be okay with that. Because again, people's, one of the common problems I hear is that they're trying to be too many things to too many people. So they're trying to achieve so much and they're trying to be good brothers and sisters, be good spouses, be great, amazing fathers, mothers, and yet be fantastic athletes as well. 
and the phrase, you can have it all, no you can't. You can't have it all. There has to be a, and people laugh, I mean, I love what I do and I give everything to what I do because I really get so much joy and satisfaction and contentment out of it. But I'm not married and I don't have children and I have colleagues who do and they would say, oh, but you're doing this, this and this. And I will always remind them and say, but I don't have a little Mary at home or I don't have a Tom. There may come a time when I will really want that and say, I think what you have is amazing. For now, I'm thrilled with where I am and what I'm doing. And I find myself very lucky to be in that position. But it's where, and the athletes again, Sarker and Fletcher, the ones who are the, the ones who are content and who made it in that Olympic Games, they felt they didn't see what they were doing as being a big sacrifice. They felt it was I'm making active choices here. So again, as Aidan says, acting their way into the feeling and knowing after the fact they'll feel great about it and then being enjoying that moment. Because mm. that's another thing that people do is they forget to enjoy the moment afterwards. You know, not celebrating. It's nearly like that we, we think that we should punish ourselves all the time. Yeah. It's like, no, let your hair down. Go out and celebrate afterwards. You know, it, you're, you're not a robot. And why do it if you can't share it with your family and friends afterwards and have, you know, I mean, one of my students this year is uh, Kelly Harrington, the girl who's the boxer. And I know Kelly had a competition there a few weeks ago and afterwards they, they asked her, oh, what, you know, you've been training really hard for this point. And she said, I'm going home for pizza. I was like, I was like, fantastic, a great example of just go and enjoy it now. Mm. You know, you can get back on the treadmill or whatever the the life treadmill tomorrow or the next day, but allow yourself to enjoy it. Because people often don't do that. They don't, don't oops, take that time to actually enjoy what they're doing as well. Yeah, you know, and I think and it celebrate it. Yes, and I think a lot of it comes that, like, like I've, I'm not, like, I haven't done very much formally mindfulness or meditation. Like sure. I feel that I'm not very, not, it doesn't come naturally to me. Mm -hmm. um, but I do f strongly feel, whether it's, whether you might call it, whether you might call it um, the flow state or what, uh, all, all, all like the, when I am at my most productive yeah. or m most content or like you know the, the all when everything is in sync, mm -hmm. um, it is very much when I am fully focused on what's right in front of me right now, and I and I have whether actively or however it's happened pay paying no attention to the past and very little attention to the to the medium to long term you're future. In the, you're in the moment. Yeah. And that's what we talk about again in performance. It's can you be task focused? Can you be absorbed? And people ask, you know, and again, my mentor Aidan Moore and his whole area of research, and I would consider myself as well, we were talking about the scientist and being a psychologist and then being a sports psychologist. My background and training is very much influenced by cognitive psychology because Aidan is a cognitive psychologist and he's the one who's trained me and I've done all of my research and mentorship underneath his, his, his tutelage, if you like. So he would have always said like, you know, well, what is the definition of concentration and focus? It is being able to be absorbed in a task while ignoring distractions. That is what it is. It's where the thinking and the doing are in sync. Now the gold ingredient or solution, if we could only bottle, when we find ourselves nearly in that state, I mean, I'm often asked, how do I get into that state, the flow state? You know, it's like, you know, I had this amazing performance last week and I, if I could only bottle it because I'd love to have that kind of a performance every week and I'd be saying, well, again, there's the door because that's not going to happen. Again, it's, 
there are so many things that we talk about the stars aligning, you know, in, in a kind of a very, how to say, not spiritualistic, but in a very kind of cliched way. Um, but it is a little bit like that. It's about where, you know, if only we could every time we sit down to read a book or watch a movie or whatever, we could become fully absorbed in the experience so that everything else fades away and we are fully in the moment. It doesn't always happen. It's not going to always happen. In fact, looking back over a career or a life, a lot of people who are, you know, and they've done some research on very elderly people or athletes at the end of their careers, look back and now tell me how many times you think you reached the flow state, where you were fully absorbed in the moment, pain seemed to be, you were in doing something difficult, but it didn't seem to really be affecting your performance. You were aware of it, but it wasn't stopping you. You were, you know, it's what the flow state is. It's about even being kind of your heightened senses where you're experiencing this just moment of sheer absorption in what you're doing. And actually looking back over a career, they've done loads of research on marathon runners. They might say I've had two, maybe three races over a lifetime of a career. So it's a really hard one to say to people, you're not really going to attain it the majority of the time, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't strive for it. So I would always say to people, you know, it's a little bit like that perfection element. It shouldn't stop you from seeking out the effort to try to achieve it. But you need to be okay with knowing that the, re and I'm an evidence-based person as well. Um, in many ways, I'm a little bit of a contradiction. I, I do believe, I have a very kind of, not very strong, but I, 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 I do have, you know, kind of, you know, Catholic upbringing, religious beliefs. I do believe in God. I don't, don't make any, I would just say, I, I believe people who have passed away are still in many ways with us and, and, and influence and help me when I need them to. Um, and, but I also am very much a scientist. Show me the evidence. So when I talk to my students, they'd say, that's what, not what you're like when you say, when it comes to my research, it's like kind of, you know, well, you know, you believe that's the case. Well, show me the evidence. You could think, think that's the way that the theory should go or that's the strength of it and these are all the weaknesses, but that's the key thing that you're kind of focusing in on was show me the evidence. So I am a very evidence-based person as well. So I would always kind of say to people in terms of performance, you may not get there, but it, st it shouldn't stop you from striving for to aim to achieve that element of not perfection, but excellence for you today. Like, what is that for today? Mm. So it's about, again, it goes back to the managing the expectations. Because again, athletes do, and that's why when, when people come in to study sports psychology, they do talk about flow and things like that and go, I'm here to learn all about that and to get that. And one of the, I suppose, biggest come down from them is where we actually have to dispel those myths. You know, no, you're not going to learn how to be hypnotized and where you can be in this transient kind of, you know, nearly oblivious state that you can just walk around and everything is effortless and everything is it's like performance doesn't work like that. Life doesn't work like that, you know. But what does the research and evidence show? And you were saying about the tips. So the goal setting would be one. We are doing a lot of this resilience training where we would put people under Again, which a lot of people don't like to hear is that you should not be comfortable. You know, a lot of elite performance is based around being okay with being uncomfortable, mm. being in a state of imbalance, but being okay with that. You know, like some pe people say to me, God, you're, you, you just do things and you're fearless. And so I'm going, no, I, I, f people talk about in sports, you know, somebody being, oh, like he or she'll stick their head in there, they're, they're, they're fearless. No, they're not. They know exactly what the danger is in doing that. But they've, they know, they back themselves. They know it's with risk, but they're, they've measured up the risk-benefit ratio and they are still willing to do it. So it's kind of like that sense of feel the fear and do it anyway. Yes.
I, no. I, I want I want to get into some of the cyber psychology, but bef sure. before I do, the, the, you, you mentioned there about the, about the discomfort. And yeah. the, so how, how do you, and I've, I fully believe that, um, in terms of the, that the getting beyond our comfort zone and into the discomfort zone. Mm. Um, how do you know that you're in that good discomfort zone mm. and that you're not going too far, you're not biting yeah. up too much, I, more I, than you I, can chew. Yeah, I totally get what you're, what you're saying, Shane. Um, I, I would say to people, you know the way we often see those diagrams and it's kind of like, this is your comfort zone, and then they say like, excellence and brilliant performance is here. You know, it's this little circle outside of your comfort zone. I would often say to people, and I think it's, it's for many ways, it's, and I'm sure that there, there is some research and evidence about it in terms of des description, but it's a good picture for athletes and for performers. And that is, I'd say to them, what you're trying to do is teeter on the side of the comfort zone. So you're kind of teetering on the edge of the cliff. Now, you've asked me, how do you know when you've gone too far outside that and now you're in a discomfort state that you're not going to perform at your best? A lot of it is trial and error. You know, a lot of experienced athletes will say at 30 odd years of age, if only I knew now what I knew then, or if only I knew then what I know now, and I could go back and tell my 20-year-old self, you know, ex enjoy that you know, Heineken Cup or enjoy that world championships or because you don't know, but I now know you're never going to get there again. So really, you should enjoy it because there may not be 10 more of them in your in your locker in the in the future. So it is about coming back to that enjoying. But I would say to people, it is about learning from your mistakes. I'm a big believer in that. I again, it's coming back to that, the perfection versus the excellence. Every opportunity, you know, they, they say in sport and in performance, you win or you learn. Or you, and people say, like, winning or losing. And then it's trying to teach young athletes and young people, it's you win or you learn. And I would say, no, you learn or you learn. There should never be a case where somebody is saying, I won, it was an amazing, and I'm not saying again that they shouldn't enjoy that experience and they shouldn't celebrate it. But even in a win and even in an amazing world beater's performance, there's er errors, there's, and, th and be okay with that. It's not the perfect performance. It will never be. So learn from that experience as much as you. So it's, it's the old cliche of the losses and the, the bad performances are never really as bad as, as they seem if you look for the key things that you may have done that were okay or that were a little bit helpful, but we tend to catastrophize the bad things in our head. And also in a, an amazing performance, don't look through rose-tinted glasses. Be, I love the word balanced. Try to not be too high with the highs and too low with the lows. Be, seek out balance. You know, where enjoy it, yes, but know that there's a learning from that too. There's lessons from that too. So again, how do you know where you've gone too far? You've learned. You learn from it. You get sick. You get injured. You become deselected because you didn't put in a good performance and the coach drops you, you know, or you didn't succeed in the exam. That's a learning experience. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't like that. They don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear that many of the things that we that help us achieve, and that was another thing with the resilience uh, piece that uh, Sarker and Fletcher with those nine um, kind of characteristics. One of them was that they that out of every experience that they had this thing called post-traumatic growth, as well as we were so again the world. You know, I, I, I my my pal, as I mentioned earlier, Niall Breslin, and and who came in and studied with us here and lead singer with the, with the Blizzards. I was at a gig last week actually where the Blizzards played in UCD and Niall has this, you know, as the front lead singer, but I know all the guys in the band and Louise, the, 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 the new player, the girl, that they will say, you know, 
the research supports that 90% odd of the world is full of sound people, it's full of really decent people. Unfortunately, it's the 10 or the 5% that get a lot of the airtime who are not the really, like we tend, even the media, they focus in on the negative and the bad stuff. Like you were saying about the cyber psychology, I've had so many people ring me up and say to me, tell me about sports. Now we're dying to hear all about like, you know, the online gambling and the addiction and the this and the that. And you're going, let's focus in all on the negative stuff. What mm. about the amazing things that technology and the cyber world has produced? So we're, go we're going there now. So yeah. that, and I'm, and I'm, this, this yeah. is something that I'm really, really interested in. So when, when you say uh, sports cyber psychology, what, what does, to, in, to the uninitiated, what yeah. is so cyber psychology or sports, or cyber sports psychology, cyber psychology? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well basically, it's, I like to think of it as being a combination of sports psychology and the cyber psychology. Now, what inspired me to write the book was a number of my colleagues, you, you might know that here in IEDT, we set up the first in the world, which I don't think enough people know about, um, first master's in cyber psychology. Some of my colleagues, um, Dr. Gwani Kirwan, Dr. Andrew Power, really interested in that area 10 years ago and were the ones who really got the ball rolling. So globally, we were the first ones to set up a master's. I never thought I'd go down. If you had asked me three, even four years ago, what's your first, your first solo book going to be, which was on the, that target list for me, I was going to get there at some point. I would have always said it would be a sports psychology book, of course. You know, it will. That's my passion. That's my area. I never would have said it would have been called sports psychology because I would have even said I'm a bit of a technophobe. Not a technophobe, but I tend to be late to the party all the time. You know, people are on Facebook before me. They're on Twitter before me. They're on Instagram before me. They're using iPhones and iPads before me. Um, so I'm kind of slow to come to the party. But cyber psychology, the way the world has gone, it's you have to get comfortable with technology. It's the way of the world. So it's the intersection so of, of technology so sport, and psychology. Exactly. So sports cyber psychology is where we look at psychology being that understanding, explaining, predicting, controlling human behavior um, and, be, and being okay with And the controlling word doesn't mean that we control. It means that you give the athlete or the person the tools to control their own behavior and their own performance. So that's what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. So sports cyber psychology is looking at how all the technology that is now available in the world, and I mean things like your sports science stuff, your GPS devices, your video analysis, your iPads, your iPhones, your everything that the athletes are using now to help them with those targets, where they are able to literally get objective measures of performance in training as well as in competition. And they're wearing the GPS devices as one example in training, not just in competition. So I was fascinated to see, I wrote a, a book chapter in, a number of years ago, two years ago, as part of an introduction to cyber psychology, where one of my colleagues who was doing it said, will you write a chapter on sport and health cyber psychology? And I went, do, is that even a word? Do people even know what that word is? And when I Googled it, there was nothing called sports cyber psychology. And Rutledge were the ones who published that book and they went, the chapter was really well received, would you be interested in writing a book around it? So I had to kind of research, well, what is sports cyber psychology? What, how would I define it? And I would define it as the intersection between technology and the interaction that we have with technology, and that's everything. That is, as I say, your iPhone, your iPad, your computer, everything that we do online, the online world, um, and that's including social media, and how sport is being influenced by that, and how me as a sports psychologist in the job that I do, how are things like Skype, and where we have athletes away abroad training, and yet they can check in with you and have a consultation with you, from the other side of the world. That's how we do it, through technology. Because they can't be, it, 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 is, it is, the world has become such a smaller place where you can communicate with people and that's a good thing. 
um, it's not a bad thing. And we often demonize the technology and the online world in many ways, but I would say technology has made life so great for so many people. You know, I mean, I have a friend of mine, Stephen Klusky, who's, um, uh, again, was one of our, our guests this year in class. And interestingly, non elite athlete, but came into my sports psychology class. And you could have heard a pin drop in this very room because we had the likes of Kelly and some of our other elite athletes, Ginny and Pinder and so on. And they were fascinated by a guy sitting up at the front of the room who at 18 broke his neck. And from there down, can do nothing, no movement whatsoever, fully cared for, and yet has degrees, masters, set up two companies, and is an absolute, you talk about people and their job and their inspiration. Stephen is one of those people for me. I met him at a conference a number of years ago. He was on my panel. I was the one doing the panel. I was the, the facilitator. And he was just incredible. It was like technology has allowed him to do all of that stuff because that's what he does. And he explained to us how he does it. He has a little dot that they put, somebody, his care, puts on his forehead. And he shines the dot at the computer screen. And it allows him to text people, to ring people. And he's a dab hand at it now. But that's what technology has allowed him to do. It's allowed him to achieve things that were beyond the realms of possibility 20, 30 odd years ago, mm. where he would have been somebody that just people would have said, in many ways, your life is over. Like, you know, and yet his life, he sees it, has only just begun. Yeah. You know, his phrase is, why not? Yes. You know, not yes. why, why not? Why can't I do it? Yeah, absolutely. And it remi know? reminds me of Mark Pollock, um, yes. who's, who's just the most inspirational guy as well. Absolutely. Um, the, the, some of the things you're talking about there in terms of the kind of intersection between humani humanity and uh, technology. Yeah. And I heard Elon Musk not that long ago talking about um, you know, where this is going, how us as people, we are effectively super, superhuman, superheroes with our smartphone in our pocket. Yeah. And uh, fast forward 5, 10, 15, 20 years, what, 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 where do you see this intersection between technology and humanity and the psychology of all of that? Where do you see sure. it going? Sure. Um, I don't think within the next five to 10, even 20 years, we're gonna see huge changes, to be bluntly honest about it. I think there, there's always a case where people, you know, we talk about, oh, things are limitless. What we don't seem to realize, a little bit like people talking, Shane, about the brain, you know, you know, this myth about, oh, we only use 10% of our brains. Right, so that's why when somebody gets like a brain injury, they can actually have that injury and have absolutely no repercussions as a result of it. Now, we use, at the moment, you have a brain that you use to the maximum capacity. Now, I'm not saying for a minute that with training and with new research and ways that we can use technology and science and medicine and the way that that can develop, that we can't learn about new things, about tapping into how we use the brain. But it's a cliche and, and a myth to say we only use 10% of our brains. Um, I know people talk about like, you know, oh, well, the world's going to be taken over by technology and robots will do everything for us. And, you know, and I'm not saying that there isn't in some sectors, people maybe who are listening in going, oh, but now you walk into the bank and it's like peopleless, you know, there's nobody at the counter, you know, old people. And I, and I really feel for the older generation where they walk in and go, no, I don't want to talk to a machine or to do stuff with a machine. I want to talk to a person who's going to help me. I don't think we're ever going to see where the whole world is going to be taken over by technology and where, you know, kind of we as human beings, there's a reason why we've kind of reached in, in a global animal sense, if you like, the top of the pecking order, is because we have things like critical thinking, problem-solving abilities. I don't think technology in the next five to ten years is going to move whereby 
all of that is going to be a machine somewhere doing it for us. Now, I know movie makers like to design movies and create movies that maybe lean towards that being a possibility, but certainly not being a technology expert, but knowing the psychology behind the human, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, I think the human brain and the way that we as people have so many... Remember, who designs the technology? The human being does. The human does, you know? So technology will only go so far as what we as human beings are allowing it in terms of what we can create. Do I think then that the whole the, the, the piece of technology is going to develop a conscience and where it can actually take over everything? No, I don't see that happening. And certainly my technology expert friends would say that's not the way that the world is going to go. It's certainly not the way we can foresee it going now. Again, can we foresee into the future 50, 100 years from now and say that it's, you know, maybe 100 years ago they said we'll never get to the moon and we'll never populate Mars and we won't have, you know, space. I mean, my, my, my friend Nora Patton, who's training to be the first female astronaut scientist, you know, commercial flights, they're going to happen, mm. you know. Who's to say that there won't be in space a colony where we've moved from Earth somewhere else? Possibly it will happen. But it will happen based on what human beings are able to do, mm. not based on what the technology takes over. It will never replace the human. It's I don't think so, anyway. It's very reassuring to hear that. Because <laughs> there, is, there is a lot, and you, you mentioned earlier on about the glass half full approach, so yeah. it, is, it is good to hear that because yes. there, is, there, is a, there is a narrative about um, the yeah. robotics and AI and... Um, humanity creating its own destructor effectively mm. um, I, I know we're, we're, we're up against a little bit of time so I want to, I want to get, sure, ask a couple more a questions um, the, one, one of the uh, concepts in your book uh, in the book sports cyber psychology is about green exercise yeah or exercise taken outdoors <laughs> in natural environments and the benefits that that might have on our mental and state. again, I seem to have predicted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. And For your out. listeners um, listening in, I have some handouts here that Shane is yes. going to take away with him and I'm nearly predicting what it was yes, he was going to focus in on. Um, I, I've, this, is mis this is something that's kind of mystified me a little bit in the past. I, I've, I live not far away from um, a swimming pool and gym in sure. Navan County Mead, and I've witnessed in the past when I kind of walk or I'm out for a run and I'm on the footpath past that gym, sure. and I see people, and it might be a beautiful morning, yeah. but they're inside on the treadmill mm. in, in, the, in, the, in the fake air environment. Yeah. What, what, what is the... My take on that. Yeah, can you can you explain on a, yeah your take on I'll explain sure. at a psychological level sure. what the difference between green exercise is and kind of yeah we forms. talk actually about two things it's actually green and blue exercise so okay. we kind of talk about the sea and I'm a big sea person we we're chatting about my background being on I'm a scary's girl born and bred and I think you need to move away from the sea to realize how much you really miss it and how much it's had a huge part of your life um, and how much it's it's really molded you into the person that you are. So to answer your question about kind of that whole blue and green exercise, there's a lot of research to say that yes, there are definite benefits from getting out in nature and train. And even for athletes, we found in the US, for example, you could have a look and Google it. Um, there's pictures even available where they've built like tracks in the middle of a forest and they have like open air training, you know, kind of facilities where they're really surrounded by the blue and the green environments. And certainly the mental health and well-being of athletes and of all people seems to be very much, it, you benefit from that. 
they have done some research about why that's the case. Um, to come back to the treadmill, actually, the, the interesting one you're pointing that out, I'm a little bit like that in that I'm very lucky to be a member of David Lloyd uh, Riverview Gym, which is up in, in, in just near Donnybrook there. And, uh, and it's a very nice environment. And, you know, but I would be one of the people that, you know, on a beautiful sunny morning, I don't tend to be, well, I'll go out and do my run outside. I might say later in the evening, I'll go for a little walk down the beach or I'll do a thing. But if I want to go in and do something where I'm really generating a sweat, and building up the I'll go in and do my intervals on the treadmill now why am I like that I think it comes back to what I was saying about I'm a bit of a target person I'll go I have half an hour I want to do something productive and um, I like to do my exercise before I do anything else as part of my day so I want to get in get a bit of blood flowing and then I would see the green and the blue exercises being my more enjoying it's not my real aerobic let me get my morning started I know there's people who would say they completely are different and that they love to go out into the air and they, I would say I very much love that too but it, for a different it's a different um, yeah. environment for me in terms of what I'm getting out of it and what I want to achieve within that sport short space of time so yeah. I like my targets and where I can get in get the job done get out and then I'll say if I want to have a nice stroll I'll do it 20 minutes later on this evening but to go back to the blue and the green exercise, so people who are in on the treadmill on a sunny day could be the people like me who are going, I have half an hour now, I want to get in, I want to hit my targets, I want and they could be very much, as I say, those target people with their little data-driven watches where they want to get their heart rate up by a certain amount, and it's like, well, I, I'm just not going to wet. No, I'm not saying for a minute that we shouldn't ditch the watches from time to time too, because again, I wrote about that in Sports Arbor Psychology, where some people who are even elite athletes, we will say from time to time, forget what the watch is telling you forget what the data is telling you you're coming back from an injury you're coming back from illness how do you feel i feel amazing that's brilliant for today be okay with that last week you were lying in a hospital bed having just had surgery the fact that you can get out and walk the pier in dunleary today is amazing do you feel great i do does it matter that it was only a 1k and you're used to running 10k a day no just feel great then so it is about sometimes ditching that data stuff as well. So that's the pros and cons. And as I say in the book, I wrote about that. So we can be very target driven, but we can also ditch that stuff. But to go back to the green and the blue exercise, the research would say that the reason why we benefit from that mentally, in terms of how people feel when they're out in the air and out by the sea, is because of a couple of things. In Japan, they did some research actually on things called forest bathing where, and I'll send you the, 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 the little YouTube clips, and if anybody is listening in, they can actually Google it and look it up. There's a couple of really nice little one or two minute videos on, on YouTube about it. And it was where they found that in Japan, they go out into the, their very, you know, their mental health and well-being in Japan. There's a lot of people living very good, long lives, and it's like, let's tap in to see what they're doing. And they do their nice gentle exercise in the morning. And there's a, you know, some of my friends and colleagues have married Japanese um, husbands or wives. And they've told me a little bit about the culture in Japan. But they have these forest bathing clubs where they literally go out into nature. And they just walk around the forests. Now, the same about the sea. Now, research-wise, I mean, I've heard people say, well, yeah, but tell us about the biology behind that. Is, there re is it all just psychology? And I would say psychology, biology, there is a very, it's a little bit like the mind-body. You know, I have athletes who say, well, how much mental prep should I be doing? You know, like mental imagery and goal setting and sitting down and doing my mental homework that I might give them. And I tend to be like, not really like that, which surprises them. Because I'd be like, what do you mean? Like, how much time should you be doing mental imagery for an hour? You know, well, I train like 10 hours a week. So should I be doing this, like sitting at home on my couch for two hours? I'd be like going, so you leave your head on the side of the pitch before you go out to train? No, you should be doing it on the pitch. You should be doing it while you're out there. 
So the mind-body, it should be in unison. So when we talk about blue and green exercise, the biology behind the benefit in terms of the, 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 the brain and the way the body reacts, they've actually looked to see at the trees, for example, when you're in the forest, okay? The air is highly oxygenated because the carbon dioxide, you know, the way the trees, like they take, but they also emit a chemical. You know, the, the, in the tree sap, you know, the sticky? that's actually emits chemicals that are anti-inflammatory so they actually when you breathe you're breathing in like what's in the air and it's cleaner air so it's not like going out and running in a city which is smoggy and you're breathing in the fumes and the chemicals and things you're breathing in fresh clean but also this air that has these chemicals that is actually being emitted from the trees that is anti-inflammatory that benefits when you breathe and Obviously, if you're breathing easier and you're feeling the benefits biologically, and there's a whole, I'm not going to get into it now, but a whole, the way that your hormones and the way that your whole body responds to that, that's why mentally as well, you have a real boost from that, like your serotonin, your dopamine, there's loads of research about the neurotransmitters that respond to that in your body as well. The blue exercise, similar, okay? People who suffer from their sinuses, they will say when they go out and walk by the sea, it clears their sinuses and their lungs and everything. Why? because we know that salt air mm. when you breathe it in and going back to my own illness what my dad did when I was trying to recover was he walked with me every beach in North County Dublin that was part of my recovery and it was because my issue was with a, a lung condition it was as I say pneumonia and it developed into a very serious condition and they said she needs to get out and needs to build up that lung again and reduce the inflammation and my parents being the very wise people that they are knew that I had childhood asthma and said being by the sea when she breathed in the sea air it's an anti-inflammatory um, a number of companies and a number of um, um, environments that were set up here and I, I don't know did one of them shut down but there used to be a place in Black Rock where you went in and you sat in a room and they pumped out um, salt air and a lot of athletes used to use it where they used to breathe in if they had any kind of asthma or any kind of lung conditions and they were trying to train heavily as well and they were trying to recover quickly they'd go into these rooms and breathe. now I'd say go down and walk by the sea you get as much benefit you know and that's out in the clean air mm -hmm. you know but they actually had these have these salt rooms where they actually pump out the same kind of air and you breathe it in and when you actually because I've been in it a few times I've actually tried it out myself and your clothes are full of salt afterwards but your sinuses and people who have allergies and stuff, they really benefit from it. Again, why? Because the lungs respond in a way it's anti-inflammatory, where they actually have a biological response. So blue and green exercise, we find biologically, it benefits you in terms of the inflammation in your body. And mentally, it's the mind-body link. There's a lot of other stuff that goes on biologically that is linked to your mental health and well-being because the two are linked. What mm. goes on in your body affects what's going on. Your body, part of that is your brain and part of that is your whole hormone and chemical, you know, kind of system in terms of, you know, your whole body and mm. what's going on. I'm not mm. going to get too technical yeah, for anybody yeah, yeah. who's not medically or biologically based here how or science based, if you like. So, yeah. How, how, clo how close are we, are not to rephrase that, how, how much more is there to learn about the brain? Really good question. Um, I would say lots. I don't know how much you would quantify that. Um, I think that's the great thing about, you said at the very beginning, if we go back, what excites you? 
I see my discipline as something that we are constantly, like students, my students will tell you, you know, every research study, every research question that we answer should lead to more questions. I always say to them, it's like a, a, it's like a springboard. You know, you're literally bouncing like a trampoline from one thing onto the next platform, onto the next platform. And that's the way research and the way science should be, you know. We learn new things all the time about our genes and about our proteins and about the way that the body and the mind and neurotransmitters and everything works. And that's all about how we feel physically and mentally. So I would say there's, there's so much that we can still learn about the, about the brain and how it functions and you know where the, I think as well, again, we're talking about the curveballs that life can throw at you. Sometimes we need people to experience brain trauma and brain injury for us to learn about what centers those places in the brain then like how is their behavior and how are their emotions affected you know um like do they become more more compassionate and more empathic people or do they become more aggressive does that mean that then those areas of the brain that have been damaged that they're the centers for those emotional you know if you like kind of that's where they sit but the brain is so complex it's not about just saying well you know your amygdala is this bit of your behavior and it dictates it because the way that would mean that our brain and the way that the the lobes and the the, the cortex and the way the gray and the white matter and that it doesn't talk to that the cells don't talk to each other they talk to each other all the time so it it's it, it there's so much to still learn but um but again as i said to you at the beginning like that like what excites you is well all of that i mean i've i've a very as i say back to the science i i love the idea that research and the evidence and the science is where we're still playing catch-up in terms of trying to look at what the human is capable of and what the human is all about and do i think a machine will ever will ever be as good as that uh, no i don't I, I honestly don't i don't think that the certainly not in our lifetime anyway mm. not something we need to worry about so anybody who's listening out there i don't think they need mm. to worry about that I'd, I'd like to ask you before we wrap up sure. uh, um, i'd like to ask you uh, in, term, in the context of some of the work you've done mm -hmm. with elite sports people, um, what, what, are, what are some of the things that you've seen people um, deal with or overcome in terms of elite sport and performance that, um, that could equally be applied to um, you know, business leadership sure. and just general kind of performance mm. in our day-to-day -day life? Mm. Well, the first thing I would say is that a lot of what I do, I tell the athletes that sit in my classroom, they are, these are not skills for sport and performance. These are life skills. These are life tools. We talk about things like mental strategies um, and uh, mental skills, first of all. So when we talk about mental fitness, what does it mean to be mentally fit? Well, mentally fit, me being mentally fit means that you've got really good concentration skills, that you can apply yourself to a task when you sit down to do it. But that's a trained thing as well in terms of putting yourself into the you know the writers the writer block like people say oh you know you're a great writer how, how did you well, like what do you do and they say well I'm a great writer every morning I get up and I go up and I sit in front of my computer at 9 a.m. It's, it's routine and it's habit and you write well when you format those routines so I would say that for a lot of athletes like we work on their concentration skills developing good routines good habits good life management so that's the other one coping skills now what are the key strategies we use to help them to develop good concentration and good coping because those are two skills in terms of mental fitness that will apply across your life they will long after you've retired from elite sport be something that will help you in business or in other areas of your life or if you're somebody who's going back to study a lot of our athletes are student athletes in that they're studying and they're athletes at the same time and we advocate for that it shouldn't be all about their sport it should never be it's all about that balance 
okay? So the strategies, I mean, we've mentioned some of them, the target setting, the resilience training, which again, we don't have too much time to go into all of them in detail, but like mental practice, mental imagery, um, relaxation techniques. We've talked a little bit about the mindfulness. Um, often people say to me, well, what is being mindful? But being mindful is, is often about being that ability to being okay with being a little bit discomfort, you know, experiencing that and knowing that your mind is going to wander, knowing that you're going to make mistakes, but being okay with that, you know, being mindful is, is about, you know, it's not being mind, like mindful, as in my mind is, is completely full and I'm out of control here, which is sometimes people think that, you know, that is what it, it can sometimes be about and lead to. It's being mindful. I, again, going back to that self-regulation, being aware of what you're thinking about and being okay with if your mind has wandered and bringing it back, like the athlete, you know, I was, I made that mistake. Well, how did that happen? Well, I was thinking about the next move. Well, what was the learning from that? The learning was, well, I need to just remember that I don't need to be thinking five passes beyond where I'm at. I need to focus on the pass that I'm making currently or the kick I'm doing now. So we have a load of strategies that we use for to help them to develop those concentration and coping skills. Um, other ones would be things like um, simulation training um, where we put them in high pressure situations. I often say as well, Sarker and Fletcher, you know, that you're going to have a read of, they will ch talk about the challenge environment, but also having a really high level of challenge but have a high level of support so the coach can't always be setting really tough challenges for an athlete in training or in conjunction with the athlete themselves setting really hard targets if there isn't really good support underneath that so where the person knows that they can make mistakes and that they're not going to get there's not a blame culture there's where the coaching has to be that it's very much that they understand what mental skills and mental fitness training is and resilience training. So in many ways, we have to coach the coaches too. We have to teach them how to manage their athletes and how to be good coaches because good athletes and good people. And, and again, in, in terms of business, you know, good employees come from having good employers and knowing that the way that they have their setup in their company work. You know, a lot of people do lip service to, oh, we've got a great mental well-being and balance, you know, kind of environment. And yet you're setting deadlines that are, you know, bombarding the person constantly and you're not giving them any break time and you're not giving them any flexible hours and you make them be in from nine to five. And what if you've got a family and you need to go early? Will you let them work from home that morning or whatever? So, we often give lip service too. So I would say a lot of what I do is working on those mental fitness elements to help them with their mental skills, as I say, looking at the strategies that we use, but allowing them to know that they're transferable across to their lives, to their families, to their work environments, to their studies. They're not skills that they are, you know, kind of, that was my sport and now. And often athletes, one of the toughest times for athletes, I'm sure you know this, Shane, is that transition out of sport where they are elite performers and then they retire. Um, again, one of our students, a um, friend of mine, David Gillick, came in and studied and he was one of the people, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying, that said, if only I know now, knew then what I know now about the difficulty that I was going to experience. Because again, it's, it comes back to the, well, how do you help athletes not to feel disappointed or upset or, you know, kind of discomfort when they retire? I'm not. That is something they're going to have to live with. It's like you have to accept the fact that you are not going to run out in front of 80,000 people again. Now, can I help you to find other ways that you can have a life that helps you to find what excites you and find some other targets to set for yourself? 
absolutely. But it's being okay with knowing that that's part of my life that's now over. Now, can I move on and find other things? Because they, sometimes we live, we like to think that we can develop, it's like a bit of a fantasy land. You know, I can just find something else that's gonna give me the same buzz or something else that's gonna fulfill me in exactly the same way where I am feeling amazing all the time or a lot of the time the way I did. That's not realistic. It goes back to setting those targets of specific, measurable, but realistic goals. You know, it's not realistic to say, you know, you're going to experience the same high or the same buzz. You're not. So it's being okay with that. And a lot of athletes struggle with that. But it's trying to remind them that the skills and the mental and physical skills that they've learned through their sport or through their performance is something they can carry with them now into the rest or the next chapter in their lives and set new targets and new goals and new ways of living and whatever. And it's like, well, again, coming back to Stephen, why not? As opposed to why, why not? You know, I think that's a really, really good place to finish. Great. Um, really really enjoyed our chat. Thanks so much. Me talking and you listening, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed that. Thank no you. problem at all. You're very welcome. Hey, Shane here again. Very, very quick word before I let you go. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. You are the great A listener. If anything in here resonated with you, I'd be fantastically grateful if you could send it out there on wherever you're most active, on Facebook, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever, even if it's just talking to somebody at the bus stop tomorrow morning. The Life Well Live podcast is all about navigating the challenges of life, becoming our best selves in the world, and ultimately living whatever it is that amounts to our own life well lived of fulfillment and contribution and happiness. I'll be back here again with another episode next week. I look forward to speaking to you then. Have a great rest of your week and talk to you soon. Bye-bye.